0: Some people put more energy into distribution than they put into the content. I don't think that's a bad strategy. It just doesn't work for us. That's not like in our DNA. The DNA for us is to put time into the content, make it remarkable, worth remarking about, and then word of mouth will take care of the rest.
1: Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. I appreciate everyone who reached out to me last week after I shared that I was feeling a little bit under the weather. I am back up to speed and feeling great again, but... I appreciate you looking out for me, and I appreciate all the incredible feedback that I got on last week's episode with Marie as well. So many of you shared the episode on Twitter and Instagram, which is not only an amazing feeling for me and the guest, Marie, but it also really helps the show to keep growing. So thank you, and please do continue to share the show if you enjoy it. We're in this together, and the more the show grows, the better I can make it. And finally, a thank you to Corey Ames, who shared a review on Apple Podcasts this week that says, quote, Jay is producing an excellent podcast with creative elements. If you're looking for a podcast with production value to aspire to, listen to this show. Jay is clearly someone to learn from. Great guests, clearly well-prepared, planned, and researched, and the post-production seems to do a great job of bringing the conversation to life, end quote. Thank you, Corey, for that review, and if you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts yet, please consider taking a moment to do so. It helps make the show better. Okay, I am really fired up about today's guest because he's an excellent example of exactly the type of story that I want to find and highlight on this show. I launched Creative Elements in March of 2020, and right about the same time, I started seeing a lot of the name Drew Riley. I hadn't come across his work before. But suddenly, he was all over the creator circles on Indie Hackers, Product Hunt, and Twitter, and he was talking a lot about this early career mini retirement that he had taken.
0: Uh, I was working as a big data engineer, uh, great team, great pay. I just felt like I could use like a break to try to build something before I turned uh, thirty. I just wanted to give it a shot to try to make it work on my own. It uh, probably goes back to uh, never enjoying school, not necessarily being a bad student, but uh, always wanting freedom from like a schedule, being in a classroom, like I'm willing to work hard, but prefer to work uh, sort of on my own terms. And that was probably it, like from probably my first job, even like non-professionally, always like saving for some time off or a break uh, to try to make something work. I have some friends who they have a smooth transition where their side project or business is actually earning more than their full-time job. And that wasn't the case for me. I had probably a three to five year buffer financially where I could have lasted or run that long uh, without working for someone. So yeah, I just leaned on that and figured that I'll, I'll figure something out.
1: We'll talk more about Drew's mini retirement at the start of this interview but he had saved a good amount of money from his job and decided to take the leap into entrepreneurship. You heard him say that he had saved a three to five year buffer. That led him to creating a newsletter called Trends. You can subscribe to Trends at trends.vc and sometimes you'll even hear me call it Trends VC. I think I actually first came across Trends from a tweet from former podcast guest, Miles Beckler, who was raving about the value of the newsletter. So what's the best way to describe Trends?
0: I'm still working this out because I know the explanation that makes sense to me and is most accurate, but I would say we explore new markets and movements. And I say movements because no code isn't a market. DeFi isn't a market. These are more so movements that are happening. Yeah, we explore them. We break them down. And what are the strategies? What are the tactics? What are the ideas that are at like the core of these things? And This is the part that may not make sense to people that have never heard of Trends VC, but what we're really trying to key in on is like we're studying change to figure out what doesn't change. So what can you attach to and compound in? And that's also why like as things are changing, like I may seem jaded, like I'm not hopping on this trend or hopping on this trend because I'm more interested in what's not changing. What's the through line between these topics?
1: Within each issue of Trends or each Trends Report, as Drew calls them, He focuses on one core idea or movement. Recently, he focused on the creator economy. He dives into the history of that idea, why it matters, who the major players in that industry are, the relevant tools and platforms, predictions, opportunities, risks, key lessons, and even some of the opposing viewpoints as to why that idea might be bogus. You get all of that for free, and more than 45,000 people subscribe to receive that report. But Trends also has a pro subscription that goes deeper into each of those areas and includes other forms of media like an audio episode and a membership community as well.
0: I can describe the typical Trends pro member as someone who values freedom over glory. Uh, Naval would probably say they play wealth games instead of status games. And that also goes back to the brutestrapper, indie hacker persona of a lot of members that we, we have.
1: And with all of this, Drew has found a lot of success. He launched Trends in February 2020, began earning revenue in May of 2020, and by October of 2020, was earning nearly $40,000 per month from Trends Pro members. That is incredible momentum in such a short amount of time. And the really inspiring thing is it happened just last year. So in this episode, we talk about Drew's mini retirement, why he decided to build Trends, how he thinks about pricing and monetization and what makes a good online community. Drew also says a lot of the value in his work comes from how he's able to be concise in his explanations and analysis, and you'll notice right away just how concise Drew can be. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. Tag me or send me a message on Twitter or Instagram, at jklaus. I would love to reshare it on my own story. And now, let's
0: talk with Drew. I don't believe in like tight budgets or line item budgets. My budgeting approach has always been to throw like a material amount of money into a savings account that's hard to touch. There's enough friction for you to like get there and play with whatever you have left. And that's been good enough for me. I sort of realized that by mistake, uh, by like investing early and having hard financial times as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old and forgetting that the money was there, yeah, through those periods.
1: Where were you living at the time?
0: At the time of mini retirement?
1: Yeah. Atlanta, Georgia. So not the, not the most expensive city necessarily, but also not the cheapest city to make yeah. a living. Did you, did you consider location in, in this experience?
0: I did. It's interesting you asked that because even as my financial runway was running low, I ended up selling my second house around 2020. And I had the choice of still making a decision within Atlanta of do I stay outside the city city center where things are relatively inexpensive or do I go and get the place that I really want? And I made the decision to go with the latter. And lifestyle wise, it was a great choice. And it probably created more pressure to make something work.
1: Well, you say pressure there as if pressure was a good thing. So talk to me about your relationship to pressure and the role that played in getting trends started.
0: I forgot who I had this conversation with, but we talk about not really two types of entrepreneurs, but two approaches where to go back to the example where some people, they will replace their full-time income with a business on the side and then they'll smoothly transition to their business. And then there are people like me where the pressure, if you will, uh, actually benefits me in terms of trying to figure something out. I think it was Cortland where he talked about this example of saving up enough money from being a contractor. And then was it Parkinson's law? There's a rule around this of like the task expands to fit the amount of time that you yeah. have. So, Yeah.
1: Did you know about yourself from the beginning when you were planning this and you're like, all right, I've got enough money to last me three to five years. I'm going to jump. I don't have a plan exactly as of yet. I don't have a business as of yet, but I know the pressure is what will push me to create this. Is that the mindset you had at the time or did that develop as time was passing?
0: Yeah, there were elements of that early on. Like I knew that in the back of my head, like I felt that, but the primary thing that I was looking forward to was having the time to just read and explore and Yeah. Some people have gap years. I never had a gap year. And it's like, I felt like I was buying myself uh, this time to explore.
1: Yeah, I get that. I mean, I've had some time off and time off is always nice because you do have that like time and space to explore, but it can also be really stressful. Like I remember when I quit my job and I had a small plan at the time of of freelancing, but there would be weeks where I would just randomly, it seemed, spin totally out of control. Like, what am I doing? Am I doing the right things? Am I spending the right time on the right things. So, as you were entering this time and you kind of you kind of took the jump without a parachute approach. What's not really clear to me is when you start this mini retirement, was the whole thing like I'm going to take 3 years and do nothing and then I'll start doing something or was it I'm quitting my job and I want to build something and I'll build it soon? Like how much fidelity did you have on timelines for when you were going to start creating an income for yourself?
0: replacing an income, building an income wasn't a high priority. It probably wasn't one, two or three. I had a lot of books I wanted to read. I had a lot of things I wanted to try. And like, those were the top priorities more so than making money.
1: And did you have like a period of time where you were going to let those things just stay the priority?
0: Yeah, that's probably coming into like just letting pressure do what it does. Like as the runway started to run low, like I think, at least in my case, you naturally react to this impending threat, if you will, of either figure something out or you go back to work for someone.
1: Yeah. Well, as, as a finance student, you know, I'm sure given that you you had that background and you cared about finances, you cared about money, you cared about saving, to just watch that account now go completely in the opposite direction, you know, week over week, month over month, when did you start to feel that pressure?
0: Uh, probably, I think 2019. So, within like things, money ran out faster than I anticipated. So, probably beginning to middle of 2019. And then, for context, Trends VC started in February of 2020. Yeah. So, I've journaled probably since 2012, 2013. And I have a journaling style where I keep like a table of contents and uh, one of those sort of categories, if you will, is around what do I need or want? And I had a list of things. And from that list, I chose based on the likelihood for this to like be a viable business, uh, which in retrospect, at least when it comes to me, was the wrong filter for these things. The better filter was what could I stick with? And after several failed projects, that's I chose the most unlikely thing to make money from my perspective, but the thing that felt like, I I felt like I could do the longest.
1: That's a really interesting box you just opened there, talking about what is the thing I can stick with the longest. Is the thing that you can stick with the longest, the filter because you think really anything you stick with can be successful, or do you think that's more just your personality, you needed to stick with something in order for it to work?
0: Yeah, I think it's both, not saying that the first iteration that you come out with will work, but if there's like a seed or a core of like inspiration or interest, I think that will see you through to like iterate. There's something there that you can iterate your way to success.
1: What are the first versions or pass or, you know, what are the beginnings of Trends VC look like?
0: It hasn't changed that much. Uh, If you go and look at the first report, you'll notice that like 80% of report 70, which is about to come out, 80% of that looks like the first report of this framework-based research. There have been slight changes, like there wasn't always a solution section. There wasn't always a key lesson section, but the core style of it was there. There wasn't always a community, but yeah. Framework-based research, we talk about topics such as micro private equity no code audience first products and even though the topic changes uh, what's predictable is the format we're going to look at what's the core problem that's being solved why does this topic even matter what's the solution in this space who are the players uh, a lot of people love the hater section which is just intelligent disagreement where we're stress testing ideas and we're trying to still man these ideas uh, as well as additional resources or links because a big uh, characteristic of or quality of trends vc reports are that they are incredibly concise so if you want more information there are there's a link section for that
1: which makes sense because you are also incredibly concise and (laughs) (laughs) i've i've seen from experience like the way that people write is often reflected in the way that they learn to speak as well Mm -hmm. when you made your first issue of trends and it was in a similar framework to this were you making that because you wanted to share it with people and you wanted to get subscribers, or is this something that you made because you just wanted to make it
0: more more of the latter where it's there are a lot of connections like a lot of areas are connected. they don't seem related, but they're very related to me. So I was interested in exposing those through lines and that's why if someone says oh i didn't check out that report or i skipped that report because i work in this area and this is about micro saas it sort of gets to me because they don't realize the through lines between these two areas so you'll notice that like especially in the key lesson section we draw through lines between seemingly unrelated markets movements ideas everything
1: you mentioned that this didn't necessarily seem like the most obvious business from the beginning why does this not necessarily seem like a viable business.
0: It's probably because of the alternatives that I was looking at. For example, uh on that what do I need or want, there were data as a service companies, there were SaaS companies. You throw up an idea and it was very clear like, okay, how can this be monetized? When this idea came up, that route or path of monetization wasn't clear at all.
1: After a quick break, Drew and I will talk about the beginning of trends and the key role that a mastermind group played in its launch and continued success. And a little bit later, we'll talk about how he thinks about pricing and how he turned this email newsletter into a profitable business. So stick around and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting and out-of-the-box website full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super-duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Drew Riley. Before the break, Drew was telling us about his decision-making framework for picking an idea to run with. He mentioned that an email newsletter probably wasn't the most obvious choice for him as someone with a background in finance and development. So I asked Drew, when he first began thinking about the idea of the Trends newsletter, how the idea was received amongst his friends.
0: I don't think they understood it. So when I think about this question, my mind goes back to a mastermind group that I'm a part of or was a part of called Zero to One Makers. And I remember throwing the idea up at the end of one of our sessions. And there was sort of like general indifference, if you will, Edmund came over, my friend Edmund uh, came over the top with excitement about the idea, and that was enough to get the first report out. And then once people saw the report, they finally understood what it was hard to describe around what I was going for, and then they finally got it. Do you remember
1: how you initially described it to that group?
0: Probably framework-based research, which may not sound super, uh, super exciting. Yeah, well, tell me why you choose those words it may go back to like the exploring the through lines or like the fractal nature of everything that we talk about, because even though the topic is changing, there are reasons why this thing matters. There are core problems that are being solved, which is why, for example, if we talk about growth tools, which some people also call engineering is marketing, when we really get to the root of like, what is the problem that growth tools solve, solves is that you're trying to sort of outpace these paid channels like Google or Facebook. like It's like a red queen's race. And that's why we end up talking about the red queen, even though we're talking about the space of growth tools, that when you really get to the core of these things, it may be a completely different topic, but it attacks the same core problem.
1: I've never heard the term red queen. What is that?
0: I think it comes from... it's so Alice in Wonderland, where, and there's also some like ties to like evolution where you're sort of like running faster to stay in the same place. But if you don't run faster, then you don't survive.
1: I wanna learn a bit more about this mastermind group because as far as we know at this point, you are two to three years inside of, you know, quitting your job. So how did you, or when did you, and why did you seek out a mastermind group?
0: So I didn't really know what I was joining. At first, it came, I found out about the mastermind group through a local indie hackers meetup where KP, a lot of people know KP from OnDeck, KP was hosting this local indie hackers group in Atlanta. And then I came to a few of those, which was held on a monthly basis. And then I sort of heard like, not necessarily rumors, but whispers about this other group that met on a more frequent basis. Uh, So one night I asked them about it uh, and then got an invite to that group. And then that was the mastermind group zero to one.
1: How many people were in that group?
0: At the point that I joined, there may have been six or seven of us.
1: And was there like a clear commonality or uh, some sort of like filter on who could be in that group?
0: There was a filter. It's a funny story. And uh, KP is going to hit me because I'm bringing this up. But uh, when I first asked about the group, uh, he was like, uh, someone has to invite you. And uh, Wit, a lot of people know Wit from Bad Unicorn. Wit was right next to him. He was like, well, I invite him. I'm not sure what the filter was, but there was was a filter there. And uh, (laughs) maybe I just didn't pass it uh, for KP at first.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What I'm hearing here is there could have been a very real future where you didn't make that uncomfortable ask.
0: Mm -hmm, And
1: that might have changed everything. You know, and that that's something I wanted to point out because people are often the difference between success and failure. and there's often like an ask involved when there's somebody that can make some sort of difference for you,
0: yeah. That was consciously what I call a comfort challenge, where going to that indie hackers event that night was a comfort challenge. I may have presented at that same event that was a comfort challenge, and then asking to join this group was another comfort challenge. And I see this idea of comfort challenges as doing things that are new and or uncomfortable. And these are sort of like asymmetric bets that seem scary, but could have a ton of upside, like you just said. And I think this was one of those that had a lot of upside.
1: How often do you try to push yourself to make a comfort challenge?
0: Uh, Each day, at least. And I say each day because it's on average. I have this weird habit around habits where like a habit bank meaning that if i do 10 comfort challenges this day another category i have in my journal is where i can keep track and then i use a habit app called habit list Uh, and for example if i don't do one uh tomorrow i can draw from that bank
1: oh i see so yeah it's an average thing so if you you tell yourself you want to have seven of these challenges per week you don't have one today you can do two tomorrow or if you did two today you can not do one tomorrow and be on track
0: or if i have a bank of 22 as i do now i can draw on it and not do any comfort challenges for the next 22 days and still keep my streak in the app
1: do you have any clear patterns in the types of comfort challenges you're taking on or do they look different oftentimes
0: yeah i forgot who i heard describing this and comfort challenges go by many names but i like the way they broke it into categories where There are like mental challenges, physical challenges, and social challenges. The mental challenges I find easiest, social challenges are somewhere in the middle for me. Well, no, mental challenges are the easy, physical challenges are somewhere in the middle, and the social challenges are hardest as an introvert. But I think that's where a lot of opportunity to improve is around those social comfort challenges as a category.
1: So we heard about the comfort challenge with asking to be a part of this group. I would imagine that presenting at that meetup might've also been a social challenge. What other, like I'd love to hear some impactful comfort challenges that you repeat in any of those categories or all of those categories.
0: Yeah. One, and it's interesting because there's, we can go so deep into this area of comfort challenges. I'm working on an essay around it right now, but uh, the one that came immediately to mind was around cold showers, which we could bucket as a physical challenge And it comes to mind because what's interesting there is about a month ago, that stopped being a physical comfort challenge. It doesn't feel amazing jumping into a cold shower each morning, but I can no longer count it as a comfort challenge because a big part of this is you have to be intellectually honest around, does does this still scare me? You can repeat them if it genuinely scares you, but I don't know. I've been doing cold showers for maybe three or four months now, and I can't honestly say that there's as much discomfort associated with it as it was at first.
1: What about a mental comfort challenge?
0: I'm probably having a hard time uh, coming up with those in the same way that an extrovert would look at the social comfort challenges I mentioned and like just laugh those away where (laughs) the middle ones are. Maybe, uh, I started playing chess again recently. Like maybe we can count that, uh, playing like a few games, my first few games back in as a mental comfort challenge.
1: I relate to all this. I was, I was talking with a friend of mine, Jay Aconzo, who's been on the show and he's doing a whole episode about probably mental is where most of these come into play. And the one that is really challenging for me lately, which actually by your framework might be a social challenge. I know that this show will continue to grow and continue to do better and better and better. If I reach out to like crazy guests that I have no, I have no business interviewing. And most of those people are going to say no, or a lot of them will just ignore me. But that is so challenging for me. Sometimes I have to like psych myself up and do a batch of, okay, here go 10 cold emails right now. Maybe I'll hear from one of them, but I got to send 10 so I can fill the pipeline of guests and make sure that the people who are coming through are really great. So I, I I'm drilling in on this because I, I feel it almost viscerally as to how important these things are
0: yeah i love to add to that where uh, doing report reviews i started these after report 30 where i talked to domain experts about whatever topic we'll cover and a lot of the outreach for those report reviews have been social comfort challenges and i've met a lot of amazing people by doing that uncomfortable ass that you just talked about like linda from scalar capital comes to mind where we've collaborated on every crypto related report that's ever come out And she's super open, super generous with her time, but maybe like you, like we, I tell myself these stories of like, you know, she's up here and wouldn't want to collaborate and she's been more than open in terms of collaborating. Uh, Sort of another inflection point that comes to mind is uh, last year with uh, founder Summit, which was uh, held by Ernest Capital, now Calm Company Fund. He went... Tyler Tringus went on the Indie Hackers podcast and mentioned uh, to anyone that wanted to join, but maybe uh, like wasn't in the financial position to afford the conference ticket at that time. So I reached out to uh, him via email. That was another social comfort challenge that that was just a world changer. And I went out there after joining Zero to One Makers, but sort of coming back and realizing that these people that you look up to at the end of the day, they're just normal people after, you know, you've drank tequila with them at 2 a.m. in the morning, eating tacos, like you just realize they're normal people.
1: And I'm sure the same is happening for people who talk to you, right? Because over the last year, you've grown trends to more than 45,000 subscribers, but that's in a span of a year. So there are 45,000 people who are looking at you as an authority on something, and they may be having the same thought about you. How has that impacted how you think about yourself or your work. Like has that elevated your own view of yourself? Is that a challenge?
0: Yeah, I never attributed because it has become easier to like reach out to these people and interact uh, with them, but I never thought about it that way. I more so think about talking to people or meeting people like Tyler and Rob Walling and these are people that I look up to. So once you sort of build a critical mass or once I built to like a critical mass of these people that I can call friends, mentors, everyone else sort of falls in place from there, not in a bad way, but in terms of it's easier to have these conversations because I've like a lot of people that I put on this pedestal have become friends.
1: Totally. Uh similar experience running a podcast and being able to talk to a lot of these people and realizing People are people. They want to be treated as people. It's weird when you almost other them by giving them so much respect. It's uncomfortable in a way. So I I resonate with that as well. We're starting to get a little ahead of ourselves here. And so I want to go back to Drew's journey. Drew launched trends in February of 2020. I found a tweet from him on May 10th, 2020 that says, My first shot at monetization failed. Last week, 102 views, zero sales. He went on to say that while writing that tweet, he had his second sale ever on Gumroad. So I asked him, several months into writing trends, but not necessarily seeing a return yet, did he think the newsletter was successful or on the path to being successful?
0: Yes and no. So it felt successful because there was a feedback loop forming. Of There were people reading open rates were incredibly high. The no comes in terms of the monetization strategy where I was still running like the runway was still running low. So knowing that sense and looking back, I I compare uh, something we're working on now at Trends to something that I was struggling with back then. And that's around how are we going to scale masterminds now? And it's a similar situation to what I dealt with then because I had a lot of ideas around the way that Trends VC could be monetized at this point that there was an audience built around it. And in a similar way, I have a lot of ideas around how masterminds could be scaled. And we literally just have to like iterate through these different versions and we'll probably keep pieces of each one until we have this model or this machine that's working. And it was a similar thing there where sponsorships could have worked, direct support could have worked, consulting could have worked, custom reports could have worked. One of those just had to work. And when, in my experience, when you have a lot of options, you only need one to work and one is going to work when you have a lot of options.
1: Did you test all of those options or did you start with one and suddenly that was working?
0: I guess we tested two. The first one was, well, technically three. The first model was around uh, pre-ordering the next report. And that was sort of decide which report got made in like a Indiegogo or Kickstarter style. That completely failed. And I almost wrote off the whole like direct support model. And then the following week I did the like split the report. So there was a free version and a pro version, and then that worked. And then the purchases came at such a rate that in the back of my head, I just had this feeling like there was nothing else to worry about. Like, would this be a billion dollar company? Maybe not, but in terms of a profitable company, it felt like we crossed crossed that threshold.
1: So the split report, were you saying that you could buy that a la carte and you also had a paid membership as an option?
0: So at first there was only the uh, free version, the pro version. So you could buy like a free uh, pro version one off. I wasn't even thinking about subscriptions in terms of someone would want to subscribe. And then that same day, several people asked for subscriptions and Patrick Campbell uh, from ProfitWell, shout out to Patrick, was the first one to uh, subscribe as a TransPro member.
1: What a beautiful email to receive. What did it feel like for someone to email you and say, hey, can I actually just pay you every month instead? (laughs) It felt amazing. Yeah. When we come back, Drew and I talk about his process for producing a trends report, the way he monetizes the newsletter today, and how he thinks about the role of community in a membership, right after this. Hey, welcome back. At this point, Drew had found a model that allowed him to begin making money through his newsletter. He would have a free version of each trends report and a paid version that went a little bit deeper. So I asked him to explain a little bit more about his process for creating a report and how he determines which pieces of it are made free and open versus put behind a paywall.
0: I recently made the decision to uh, try to work with uh, a few other writers and move to more of an editor role. I will still do some writing, but I will do uh, much more editing. And this is something I would love to uh, show the writers that I work with, but it's like this front-loading process. And I got this uh, habit from chess where if you have 10 possible moves, uh, basically running like a linear search algorithm in your head to figure out the best move, but doing that for each opportunity or each prediction in the opportunity section, it's a mix of how big of an opportunity is, is this and how many people does it help in the prediction section. It's how important or impactful is this prediction and then the confidence level of it. So some mixture of these uh, sort of attributes of each category and then front loading based on the top and always putting the uh, strongest candidates up front and then usually take about 50 to 60 percent of that and then make that free. And then the latter half will go to a pro version of a report.
1: And has it always been that way or did you learn your way
0: there? That's another thing that I think was in, in the beginning, in the first report, this, this sort of habit of front-loading. And now that I think about it, a lot of this stuff was worked out in terms of the format of the reports, that habit, probably because I sat on this idea for so long that there were a lot of things that I thought would work for it. I wanted to go into it, and I probably pulled the trigger very late. So a lot of it came fully fleshed out by the time the world saw it.
1: How did you think about pricing for... The Pro version of a report, and then, as you rolled out subscriptions, how did you think about pricing then?
0: pricing at first may have been like reference pricing or i'm not I'm not really sure like what was the pricing strategy at first, and I wouldn't want to make anything up in a retrospect and then pricing now it's very interesting because if trends didn't have a community attached, it would be priced very differently. But the community did a lot of interesting things in terms of the like friction or barrier to entry. In in a similar way, uh, in the past, I wouldn't hesitate if someone asked for a discount to give them a discount if this was just a zero marginal cost product in the form of reports. But now that we have a community, I've actually noticed that there's a very uh, like direct inverse correlation to people that ask for discounts and like the quality of community member, if you will. Uh, there is like purchase parity built into it, but it's something about people that would ask for discounts in terms of the type of community member that they become. So it's actually complicated things like pricing.
1: And what is the pricing now? Just so I make sure I have it right.
0: If you're only interested in reports, uh, that's two forty a year U.S. And you can also like discuss reports with others if you're interested in the community, meaning that there are uh, daily stand-ups you can participate in, a weekly Trends Tribe calls, which are just multiple rounds of one-on-one chats, as well as the option to join masterminds after a 100-day stand-up streak. Uh, That tier is 300 a year. And if you want direct access to masterminds, uh, that option is 1200 a year. What's interesting about that tier is that when people opt into that, the opportunity cost of their time tends to be so high. So they use it to, more to like express support, it seems, than to actually participate in the masterminds, which is very interesting because we would love to have them. But again, it goes back, it seems to the opportunity cost of their time.
1: When did you determine that a community component would be part of Trans membership?
0: That probably came shortly after Report Review started, so shortly after Report 30, where I was meeting a lot of then just readers, and I thought it would be dope if they could meet each other, and I started to make these connections directly between people, and it just felt like it would be great if they could self-initiate these instead of me being in the middle and making these connections.
1: What do you guys use for your community backend? What platforms do you use?
0: Uh, we use circle and that's what people think about like slack circle discourse we use circle for that and we have a ton of other tools that we use to sort of augment that when you mentioned the pricing
1: you gave annual costs is it annual only yes i imagine that was an intentional decision and i'd love to hear your reasoning behind why annual only versus monthly or even quarterly
0: So there was a monthly option at first. And one thing I'm not, I haven't like thought deeply about this around business models and sort of the pricing periods, but at least the way that we think about it at Trends VC is if there's a year plan, like there's a year for you to like experience that value. And even if you look back over the last year, someone asked in the recent product hunt launch, like what has changed since uh, Trends? 2.0, 1.0 Uh, 2.0, 1.0 to 2.0. And it's basically like 60 to 70% of it has changed. If you opted in to uh, Trends VC, Trends Pro paying $9 a month, there was no community. There was n- no masterminds, nothing like that. And there are people paying $9 a month or that have become lifetime members that pay nothing and they're part of masterminds. So it's this increase in value. And we have this time to compound, iterate, and improve the experience and for you to realize that value in that year versus a like month-to-month period.
1: I've spent a lot of time thinking about community and memberships over the past year. And more and more, those are distinctly different things in my mind. For a lot of memberships, a digital community space is a core part of the value proposition. But I don't think it necessarily has to be. Some content memberships are all about additional content and that's it. So I asked Drew whether he thinks cultivating community is a necessary part of a content membership.
0: I don't think so. And I think it complicates things. And I've thought about this a lot where I wish that we didn't have to start the community, but it's almost looking at other like communities that try to like serve a similar role. And it's like seeing bugs that needed to be like fixed or tweaked, if you will. Where I recently wrote in a Twitter thread that the community added much more work. Uh, to the process and the operations of Trends VC, but it felt like it was something that needed to happen in terms of, again, hosting standups, masterminds with cer- certain constraints around them.
1: Yeah. Cause it is, it is a huge time commitment, right? It's not, it's not a passive thing. It's a very active thing. It almost gets into like services in how you spend your time or hire other people to spend their time. It's it's something that I don't think people think about enough when they strap on a community component to a paid membership.
0: And then there's that part that we talked about in one of your threads around negative network effects, which people seem to overlook, especially when they think about niche communities. So you've almost added this, like I don't want to call it negative compounding because that's not what it is, but this is this, like device or attribute uh, to your business. And we're working on like turning that on its head right now. And we can go into that if you're interested of how do you flip these negative network effects on its head. But it's it's something that you would have to navigate, especially if, uh, yeah, especially if you don't have like sort of this, this like personalization that would go into a Facebook or a Twitter or a social network, which is another beast because those aren't all even communities in my mind. Those are like communities of communities, some of which hate each other, if you will.
1: What do you mean by negative network effects for people who aren't familiar?
0: So usually people use the term network effects. They usually mean it as like a positive attribute or quality of a business, meaning that the more people that let's just, they apply to like different types of businesses, but let's just take Twitter as as an example. The more people that join Twitter, the higher quality uh, threads, for example, if you use Twitter for threads, will get surfaced because you have more people sort of competing Uh, for this attention, and the best will make it to the top. The best will be surfaced. You will also see what you're most interested in. What you see on Twitter, Jay, is different from what I see on Twitter. In these niche communities where they haven't necessarily solved this personalization problem, everyone's seeing the same thing, which means that instead of, you know, with Twitter, maybe 10% of threads have to be good. In a niche community experience, I would say 80 or 90% have to be good if we're all seeing the same thing.
1: And if you are paying for something because you want access to the community, you're paying for value that's created by other people that is out of you, Drew Riley's, control a lot of times. And if the quality of things begin to degrade or somebody's friend leaves the community, now they want to leave. It can trigger this downward spiral of other people following suit and leaving. Absolutely. Well, with the time that we have left, I want to kind of close out the trends growth story a little bit because you know we mentioned first sale happened in May of 2020. Today, you have 45,000 subscribers or more, a thousand pro members, I've heard you say, maybe more than that now. That's huge growth in the span of a year. So looking back, what were some of the inflection points that allowed you to get in front of so many people for them to have the choice to subscribe?
0: My mind goes directly to our first product hunt launch, which happened August of 2020. And around that time, we had maybe six to 7,000 free subscribers, which mostly came from Twitter and indie hackers uh, sharing threads of reports there. And then that product hunt launch within the course of that month took us from like six or 7,000 to 25,000. And then from August wow. of last year to August of this year, we went from maybe that 25K to 40K. And then so far since launching last week, we went from like 40K to we may be at 46 or 47,000 from the second Product Hunt launch. So those are just a couple inflection points.
1: Those are incredible numbers from Product Hunt, even specifically. What do you think attributed? To such high conversion from page view to subscriber in those campaigns?
0: Hmm. It may have been the social proof from like not launching too early. So there were people who experienced the value and could like attest to the value on a product Hunt launch page. So that goes into not only the conversion of people being on the page, but even making the page visible and people being aware that support came from those who experienced the value before.
1: Yeah, I, I think about your, your homepage a lot because it's basically social proof and an email capture. It says join 45,000 plus entrepreneurs or, or, or something to that effect. And then it's just an email capture. And there's no real other thing that you can do when you hit that page, which I imagine converts really high. And I'm wondering if you've tested other uh, versions of that and how intentional that choice is to this day.
0: Yeah, there was an intense period of testing, maybe it was six or seven months ago until we got to a space where it felt like, okay, this is a good enough conversion rate. And you're right, it converts very high, probably between like 40 to 60% of people who hit that page. And I didn't realize that was possible until reading, I forgot who posted it, but someone posted on Indie Hackers about their conversion rates. And since then, we haven't done a ton of testing crazy.
1: And it seems like once they're in they kind of stay in. Talk to me then about how you approach social media or indie hackers or anywhere else that you're sharing your work on a weekly basis that isn't directly to your existing subscribers.
0: So Twitter has been like a great like engine for us in terms of growth. So there's going to be a Twitter thread that's table stakes. We also still share reports on Indie Hackers. That's going to happen, but It's really optimizing just for like quality. And some people uh, say, don't do this. I think it comes down to like, what type of strategy you want to run, where some people put more energy into distribution than they put into the content. I don't think that's a bad strategy. It just doesn't work for us. That's not like in our DNA. The DNA for us is to put time into the content, make it remarkable, worth remarking about, and then word of mouth will take care of the rest. And there's like a minimal viable dose of distribution. And that's exactly what we do.
1: On your first product hunt campaign, you mentioned that, that, I think that went to number one product of the day, right?
0: Yep. The first time around it was product of the day, week and month. Yep.
1: Day, week and month. Crazy. Mm -hmm. How much did you lean on your existing subscribers to push that campaign versus it was kind of like organic product hunt traffic?
0: I attribute a lot of that success back to the zero to one group, not only in terms of like sparking trends VC itself, but it reminds me of the fact that we're still sort of this clan, if you will, where like if one person launches something they have at their disposal, all of the audience of everyone that's like in this crew. So if you're in this bootstrapper indie hacker community, that's probably all you heard that day from that group of people. So Again, it goes back to like sure, like the subscribers experience the value of Trends VC before that launch, but a lot of credit also goes to that zero to maker, zero to one maker crew.
1: Well, for somebody who's considering creating a paid content membership, meaning that they want to offer extra or different or exclusive content for a subscription fee, what do you really think they should consider or understand about that business model?
0: This will be biased uh, because I'm me and I see the world uh, through my lens. It would be just a focus on quality and not just a focus on quality to go back to distribution. There's a minimal viable dose of distribution that's needed, but it feels like there are a lot of people like yelling about things that may not have the substance to like back up the volume of their voice, where it feels like if you create something that's worth talking about and then make people aware of it, the word of mouth can carry the rest of the message. I don't think enough people are focusing on quality.
1: Do you think that maps to reader expectation as well? Do you think people who are paying for premium content have really high expectations?
0: Yeah, I think it's a prerequisite, especially if you're doing this direct support model of like people paying you for content. One of my favorite podcasts is the Founders Podcast. It's also the only podcast that I pay for and the like quality is extremely high if we move to more of a like sponsorship model you're almost rewarded for mm-hmm. noisiness where you're trying to satisfy all of these different types of stakeholders including the sponsor but i also think the like quality bar is lower there because no one's directly supporting you like the the Yeah, the incentive structure is just like way more diluted, where the readers aren't necessarily the people that are supporting the content. So you get all over the place. There's a place for that. There's a place for everything. But when we talk about this paid membership model, quality matters a lot.
1: I find Drew's story so inspiring and not just in the hollow, wow, that's so cool type of way. But Truly the, if this guy can make this work in such a short amount of time, I could do that too, sort of way. What really stands out to me is just how quickly Drew did build a revenue component to his business. From launch in February to earning some sales just a few months later, is actually really quick for an email newsletter. And what really helped Drew along the way were some of his social comfort challenges. He was able to gain the support and advocacy of other people in the early days that really helped his product hunt launches and more. That's such a big opportunity for all of us, but I know it's uncomfortable to ask for help. A big goal for me is to do a better job of that next year. And I bet you could do a better job of that too. If you want to learn more about Trends, you can subscribe for free at trends.vc. And you can follow Drew on Twitter at D-R-U-R-L-Y. Concise even in his Twitter handle. Links to both are in the show notes. Do you want to be featured on a future episode of Creative Elements? I love hearing listener questions, and I'll be embedding them into episodes of the show along with my answers. Just visit creativeelements.fm to leave me a voicemail, ask me a question, and I'll put that into a future episode. The link is in the show notes. Thanks to Drew for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Incredible artwork this week. Thanks to Nathan Toddhunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know, or find me on Instagram at jklaus. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.